Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. We covered plenty of fascinating stuff this week. First, we discussed how recent profit downgrades suggest an ASX market correction is imminent. And then we mentioned how forward orders are signaling slowdown in business conditions and how one prominent magazine cover is a contrarian indicator that inflation peak is already priced in. Greg then explained why the stock market usually rises during a rate hiking cycle and when the market falls. And we finished off with a nerdy equation, which explains why US stocks are still on a bullish run despite everything. Hello, and welcome back to the fifth episode of What's Not Priced In. Greg, welcome. And can you believe it's already been, what, five episodes, five weeks worth of Five weeks. Podcasting. There you go. No, it, uh, time flies when you're having fun, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, it's been five weeks, and over those five weeks, I do sometimes like to start off the podcast with, a, with an interesting quote that sort of summarizes the spirit of the show. And I, I have found another one, and I thought, I'd indulge myself and quickly share it with you. It's um, it's it's quite an old quote. It's from 1976. It's from the Financial Analyst Journal. It's, it's I like old quotes. Journal, actually, Stand the test of time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So it was from the then editor, Jack Trainer. He was the editor of the Financial Analyst Journal. And he, he had this great quote that I want to share. And I think it sort of goes to the heart of what we try to do here. And this is what he said. He said, there are only two kinds of investment ideas. Those whose implications are straightforward and obvious take relatively little special expertise to evaluate and consequently travel quickly, like hot stocks. And then there are those ideas that require reflection, judgment, special expertise, etc., for their evaluation and consequently travel slowly. Pursuit of the second kind of idea, rather than the obvious, hence quickly discounted one, is the only meaningful definition for long-term investing. And I thought that was quite Excellent a great quote. quote and encapsulates what we try to do here. Excellent quote. Yeah. And it's a good uh it's a good way to think about um investing is is also a reflection of um your personality and your um the way that you interpret events in the world. And look, there's some people that love a hot stock and love a hot trend, and there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you understand what the risks are and uh how to play those trends really quickly and you can be in and out. Uh, I've never been very good at that and I've always been really cautious about being involved in that style of investing just because it doesn't suit my personality Mm. style. I like to do good analysis beforehand. I like to make sure that when I'm buying something, I know that what the value is that I'm buying and I like to know that I'm buying at a discount to that value. So if there is... Mm. Uh, certain events in the market, certain shifts in sentiment that I can have a bit of an anchor to know what it is that I'm owning and and those sorts of things. Whereas when you invest in hot stocks and whether that's lithium, whether that's AI, whether that's whatever whatever the flavor of the moment is, you have to be really either ignorant of, of those things and therefore just ride the, uh, ride the trend. And, and if you're lucky, you can get out with a profit um, or you can, uh, you know, have to be really 
switched on as to as to what those shifts in sentiment are and to be able to take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. And I was looking through some charts just before we 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 started this show. And there's a company out there called Lake Resources, and I know it because I got mm-hmm. put into a thread on Twitter maybe a year ago, where I, I kept getting copied into these these people ramping this Lake Resources, and I just kept ignoring okay. it. But it went up hugely, and and it, I think it was a favourite of a lot of yeah. people on Twitter. I don't even know the stock; it probably has something to do with um with lithium being Lake Resources. Yeah, so, it's a lithium stock. But yeah. it, it has completely bombed over the past 12 months and it is now falling quite sharply and hitting new, you know, multi-month lows or 12-month lows. So it's just it just goes to show those types of stocks, you're in there for a very short time. You try to get a you try to get a ramp and, and you and you try to make a decent amount of money and then you're out of there. But to me that's just low probability investing. Whereas what we try to do mm is have a strategy that you can replicate over and over and over. And one of those, the key part of that strategy is to keep asking, what is the market missing? What has the market priced in? And has that been more than reflected in the price? Is there is there good value? Uh, do the charts show that the downtrend has stopped and there might be a shift in that trend to, to higher prices in the months ahead? And if you tick those boxes, you've got a pretty good, pretty good return. And not to sort of talk about my stuff here, but I, I, I've recently updated my performance since I started doing this back in 2014 and recording the performance. And the average pick in my service has outperformed the market considerably in, in that time. Now, some years I outperform, some years I underperform, but over time using that, that process, you're going to, you're going to do well. And, and, Going back to the, your original quote, you need patience to do it because sometimes you feel like it's not working, the market's not on your side, uh, and there is a temptation to jump and do something do something differently. But uh, if you are patient and you can replicate that and your personality is wired to that way, it's a good way to invest. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's good that you mentioned Lake Resources. I think, I think for a while there, I think in 2021, it was one of the top, performance stocks on all odds and i think most of those stocks that were the best were lithium stocks and then it just goes to show that a lot of that was already discounted and, and then yeah now the stock is down way way from its which is why we highs. look for the uh the top but, underperforming stocks of the exactly <laughs> of the year to see where yeah. the opportunities might be <laughs> for the next 12 months doesn't always work out yeah. like that but you're going to have a more chance yeah. of making money in the next 12 months than than trying to follow the last 12 months best performer it happens all the time yeah, regression to the mean. Well, with that said, I think we'll um, we'll turn to some of the stories of the week and maybe a bit of a review in what the market is pricing in and what it sort of isn't. Um, so where would you like to start? What's what's the biggest story that you've sort of been following this well, week? I guess the biggest story is we do have quite the, a lot to cover. the shift in, in, in market sentiment, which we saw abruptly mm-hmm. yesterday. Uh, the ASX 200 fell over one and a half percent. Large part of that, those two hundred stocks were down. I think from memory, there was only twenty stocks that finished in the green yesterday. So there was broad selling, and it wasn't necessarily because of the U.S. So the U.S. is still in in pretty pretty good shape in terms of the sentiment over there. That there has been a bit of profit taking over the past few days. We're recording this on. Uh, Friday morning, 23rd of June. So overnight in the US you know, on Thursday, markets were up again. Uh, but our market really cracked yesterday and there was a lot of 
lot of selling. Uh, no real catalyst for it. Uh, my only assumption is that investors are starting to wake up to the fact, and we've been talking about this on the podcast for the last five weeks, is that the lagged impact of monetary policy will flow through uh, and, and have an impact. So, um, yeah, I think that's the that's the biggest story, this, this shift in the market. Uh, the last sort of rally over the previous 10 days didn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I sent out, I don't really tweet too often, uh, but I sent out a tweet on Tuesday afternoon saying, can anyone explain this rally? I said, it just seemed bonkers. I don't, don't understand yeah. it. Uh, most of the people agreed and said, you know, no idea why there was a f- few people that, that gave, uh, reasons as to, as to what that might be end of, end of financial year, buying by fund managers, all that sort of stuff. But really it, it, it didn't make a lot of sense given the headwinds that we are facing. And we talked about the retailers last week, the retailers are under, you know, huge amount of, huge amount of stress. We talked about the mortgage mm-hmm. cliff. So all those things just seem to be be coming into view. Uh, I do want to show some charts just to give people a bit of a sense of where the uh, where, where the ASX two hundred, where the uh, various indices in the in the Aussie market is sitting at the moment. So in the scheme of things, got the ASX two hundred here. In the scheme of things, the, the fall yesterday took off uh, took off quite a few days of rally previously but it doesn't really do a hell of a lot of damage from a from a charting perspective uh so if you're a chartist you probably look at that and say look it's a bit worrying to have such a big four but these medium term uh trends here this medium term trend which is the 50 and 100 day moving average still seems still seems reasonably holding up reasonably well but the point is that the asx 200 is not hugely far from its all-time highs which it's tried to beat a couple of times over the past couple of years, but hasn't been able to break through there. Uh, but then when I look at the sub indices as well, uh, so this is the ASX 200 banks index that probably looks the worst out of, out of many of these, these indices. So banks have sort of gone sideways for the best part of two years, uh, reached tried to uh, break through old highs back in February turned down from there and turned down rather sharply and each time it's rallied back up into these moving averages it's hit selling pressure and the same thing has happened here again so if i look at the banks they've had a nice little rally out of out of a breaking of support come up and hit this resistance again so this downtrend seems pretty intact for the banks and we talked about the banks in one of the episodes and talked about the overvaluation of the the key bank uh commonwealth the other banks seem like reasonable value, but given that Combank is the leader in that uh, sector, the fact that that is still significantly overvalued in my view and the way I look at valuations suggests that there's more downside for the banks to come. And that's given that we are going to see continued uh, pressure on the market because the RBA is going to keep keep rates high. As I said, I think it was last week, uh, I think the RBA is probably a lot closer to being on, on hold now than what the market thinks. I know there's a lot of talk out there about continued rising rate, uh, continued rate increases. Not sure if that's going to play out. I have more to say in that in a minute, but we'll just run through the rest of these indices just to give people a sense of where the Aussie market's at. Uh, the resources index, really close to not far from all-time highs that were reached in 
January this year. So we ha- we did have a correction rally back up. To me, this could be turning into a, a downtrend as well, and that's on the back of weakness in iron ore. Uh, energy looks like it's holding in there reasonably well. So even though you've seen a 50% retracement in oil prices over the past 12, 12 to 18 months, the energy stocks have really held in there, which is, uh, to me, sign of longer-term structural support. Uh, I'm bullish longer term on, on energy stocks. Consumer discretionary, this index seems to have rolled over. It looked like it was trying to break out to, to new highs here. Uh, as, as recently as May, it was up to nearly mm-hmm. breaking out to new highs for this move since really sharply turned down and, and yesterday was another heavy selling day. Uh, the small odds, this index has really struggled, hasn't rebounded in the way that many of the other indices has. And that's just a reflection of small companies really struggling in this economic environment. The utility is doing really well on the back of AGL and Origin, which is under takeover offer. So those are the two key stocks holding this index up. And if you look at the industrials, which is a big section of the Aussie market, uh, that's a really strong looking chart. Uh, recently wow. broke out into yep. into new highs and holding above those highs. So in terms of the economic situation, the industrials are, are shrugging that off. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see here whether they can hold above this level or whether uh, it falls back down in below this support resistance area. And lastly, just the consumer staples, which is really your Coles, Humet Cash and, and, and Woolies. Uh, not really terribly exciting, but that's the industry, uh, quite defensive. So that can imagine that it would attract a few uh, capital flows in this environment. Uh, and just on on the market situation, uh, going back to the US, the US is still in extreme greed mode. We showed this last week. Uh, it's actually um, not too dissimilar to what it was a week ago. Uh, it was 82 points a week ago. Now it's 80 points. So it's still in the extreme greed uh, the mm-hmm. volatility indices are showing that there's just not a lot of concern out there. This is we we showed the Move Index last year, which is an index of bond market volatility. That's coming down. Euro dollar one month option volatility uh, very very low, and just the VIX, which is the standard, uh, I guess, standard indicator of share market volatility, mm-hmm. uh, very very low as well. So there's no real concern happening in in US markets or overseas markets but the Aussie market is starting to get a little bit little bit wobbly and one of the key charts that might indicate why this is from the the NAB uh, business survey that was out uh, a couple of weeks ago and it shows uh, forward orders uh, leading business conditions so forward orders are starting to fall quite sharply uh, and they tend to lead business conditions by a couple of months. So m- I guess my conclusion would be yeah, that I think, um, the market is starting to see a slowing Aussie economy and, and share prices are starting to to adjust to that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that yeah, pretty much I think, explains um, things. Yeah, definitely. I think with that NAB survey with the forward orders, the the report did say that historically – there have been very few periods of negative orders outside of downturns in the economy. So that's a pretty blunt message of what's to come. And I think definitely one, I think there was another chart that the report from NAB had that 
I think forward orders have been especially hit in the retail sector. And I think one of the biggest stories this week has definitely been the 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 horrible downgrade in profit from best and less. Uh, I think a huge, a huge cut in profit guidance. And it was only, I think, in May that the company said, look, things are looking a little bit uncertain, but, and they set guidance. And then I think um, this week they said, well, sales have actually deteriorated sharper than we thought. Um, and we've actually had to cut our profit guidance because we, they're continuing to promote and continuing to discount. And so that's definitely hurting their margins and sales are down, I think over 10% on a like, like for like basis. So if a, if a retail like best and less is struggling, it's definitely, um, a big concern for other retailers. Yeah, it was a really, really sharp uh, profit downgrade and thankfully their under takeover offer. So the share price didn't uh, reflect what those, what, you know, what that downgrade was. But it's just symptomatic of what's happening in the, the sector as a whole. Uh, during the week, UBS came out with the downgrade of profit expectations for the, the whole sector. Uh, you know, I, I do think this is, getting to a point where it's getting interesting for retailers. You know, we've, we've spoken about this before. When you see negativity around sectors like this, it's time to, to get interested. And I think the next step for me will be looking at what the profit downgrades are. You want to see probably two or three rounds of, of profit downgrades before you can say, okay, maybe earnings are based because the difficulty with retailers is over the past couple of years, they've had very m- maybe better than expected earnings purely because there was the lockdowns, mm-hmm. uh, there was the giveaway of money, governments paying people to stay at home, not work and consume. Uh, and, and certain retailers did very, very well from that. Uh, so you could probably look at 21, 22 earnings as being outliers. Uh, so you the difficulty is trying to work out what is the trend growth and what is a reasonable mm-hmm. uh, what is a reasonable earnings base to to then start to say okay what what are what are the PEs what is the profitability based on 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 these and and I think there does need to be a certain amount of rebasing of those profit expectations so you can't necessarily compare them to 2022 and say our oh, profits are down 30 percent mm-hmm. therefore this must be a, a good buy. You probably need to go back and look a couple of years in you know, 2018, 2019 and work out from there whether the the, the downturn in expectations is is getting to a point where these companies are a good value. And as I said in previous weeks, I think that's definitely going to be the case. I think we will see really good value unfolding uh, in the sector, uh, but you just need to be patient because with the the RBA keeping rates on hold at least, even if they don't raise rates again, I think you're going to see rates on hold for for some time. So that and we pointed out that mortgage cliff last week with 60 bill worth of fixed rate mortgages coming off in the next quarter. There's going to be continued pain in the retail sector, so you just need to be patient. And this is where the charts can come into it and and show you whether the downtrend has stopped and, and whether there's buying support coming in before you start to, you know, try to catch that proverbial falling knife. Yeah. And I think speaking of the, of the retail sector and maybe retail stocks, I did um, find a very interesting quote from the 
RBA Deputy Governor, I think Michelle Bollock, she gave a speech about employment or unemployment, I think a few days ago. But I think during that speech, she did mention something that was very interesting. She called it the the million dollar question. And that question related to the outside savings that Australians built up during the pandemic due to all the stimulus and us being pent up at home. And I think it was a bit of an unprecedented situation where I don't think a lot of economists or politicians thought that we would accrue so much savings. And actually our uh, our savings buffers ballooned. And it, what she said was that during the pandemic, Australians on average, not all households, but on average, built up massive buffer of savings. They couldn't spend it. They spent what they could on goods and then they couldn't spend anything on going out or going on holiday. So they just saved it all. And the million dollar question is, what do they do with it? Do they continue spend it? Or do they decide, well, no, I'll sit on that now and I'll just use it as a bit of a buffer for the future. So uh, I think that is a great question, especially for the for the consumer discretionary sector. Uh, if there is still excess savings that uh, the average consumer has, do they continue spending it or do they sense now that the market is sort of maybe turning, economic conditions are toughening and will they now decide to sort of take that money out of the market. I think that's, that is the million dollar Yeah, question. absolutely. Probably a billion and, dollar And I, I don't know the answer to it. I do know that when we covered the GDP uh, national accounts a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember what uh, you said exactly, but I think the saving rate was down to a level it hasn't been for, for many years. Yeah. So we have already dug into those savings considerably. And when you look at the rate rises that are coming through and the the ongoing increases in interest payments that that people are going to have to put towards higher mortgage costs. There's a argument to say that those savings will continue to be run down purely to keep people's heads above water. So uh, I'm not sure. Uh, look, I think the easy answer is that the majority of those savings have already been spent into the economy in terms of creating better than expected growth. And from now on, it's going to be really hard to do that. And the national accounts from December to March showed that we are nearly in, in recessionary conditions and we're on a per capita basis. Uh, I think the economy went went backwards in that in that quarter. So things are already slowing down quite a bit. More interest rate rises coming through the system. I'm not quite sure whether there's enough savings there to continue to, to spend our way out of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of interest rates, I think you found a, uh, an interesting magazine indicator from The Economist. Uh, and maybe you could um, share with the Yes, with the definitely. And, and the reason I thought this was, uh, so this is The Economist magazine. The most recent cover is called The Trouble with Sticky Inflation. And the reason I thought this was interesting because we've spoken previously about interest rate rises and and my view is that the Fed is probably a lot closer to being done with interest rate rises and and the RBA as well and when you get a when you get a, a, a magazine indicator like this that basically says what everyone's been saying for the past six months inflation's sticky what are we going to do about it to me it's almost like a, a classic contrarian indicator of worrying about what has been and not necessarily focus, focusing on on what's coming. And uh, 
so this this in many ways just cements my view that we are probably a lot closer to the peak in interest rates than uh, than what a lot of people are expecting. And I know there's a lot of commentary in Australia about the Reserve Bank's potentially going to raise its cash rate to above five percent, which would entail what another three, maybe four interest rate rises from here. And I just I could be completely wrong, but I just don't see I don't see that happening. And for those who, who don't know, we, we like to look at magazine indicators as a contrarian indicator purely because they reflect what the market's thinking and they reflect what news is already out there. And and obviously one of our key sayings is if it's in the news, it's in the price. And I think certainly the way that the market is looking at interest rates and look, to be fair, the Bank of England just raised rates overnight yeah. uh, and they definitely do seem to have a a sticky inflation problem. So I'm not saying it's not there. I'm just saying if we look ahead three to four months, uh, the environment could be could be completely different given that there's a lot more rate rises in the system still to flow through. And I've got a interesting chart in a little bit with a with a comment from a, a really good economist that I follow uh, that we'll dig into on the what's not priced in section. Yeah, and... Well, would you want to turn to that now or did you want to cover anything else that you've found during uh, the week? Why don't we turn to it now purely because it's on it's on the topic uh, and I think uh, yep. I think it's a really, really interesting take on, on the whole interest rate rise mm-hmm. uh, aspect. Now, I'm going to read uh, from economist Dave Rosenberg. I've been following Dave probably for the better part of... Uh, well, probably since 2007 when he was in Merrill Lynch and then he went to Gluskin Chef, which was a Canadian uh, Canadian company or fund manager. Then he went out on his own and now does uh, Rosenberg Research. And I just like him because he is a contrarian guy as well. Uh, he's bullish when things when, when you deserve to be bullish and he's bearish when he sees uh, certain things to be very, so he doesn't go with the crowd at all. He's not not influenced by mm-hmm. mainstream opinion, and he's very very thorough on his research. So uh, let me just read from a research note that he put out this week. Mm-hmm. It is quite long, so apologise for uh, the, the the chunky quote, but I think it's really important, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. So. This is what he said. Mm -hmm. There is so much talk about how the stock market has weathered the Fed tightening program with tremendous panache. But as I have kept saying, being a keen student of economic and financial history, this is nothing new. With just one exception over the past six decades, the S&P 500 actually was higher at the date of the last Fed rate hike than at the time of the first volley. This is because most of the time the Fed is raising rates, and this does compress the market multiple, but it does so into a rising corporate earnings environment, which acts as a strong antidote. So depending on whether the May rate hike was the last this cycle or whether the Fed does lift rates once again or twice more, the S&P 500 is little changed from where it was at this time, of the, at the time of the first rate, rate increase in March 2022. As everyone celebrates this accomplishment, let me assure you that 90% of the time in the past, the stock market has been higher from point to point in the Fed tightening cycle. In fact, the average gain is plus 14% and the median closer to 15%. So what he's saying there is that during the tightening cycle, 90% of the time on average, the S&P 500 actually finishes higher. And that's because the tightening cycle 
coincides with rising strong economic growth, rising corporate profits, and those rising corporate profits more than offset the compression effect from a rising interest rate slash market rates, discount rate, cash fleet, cash, uh, the, sorry, the equity um, risk-free rate, all those sorts of things. So what has happened is not really been unusual for the, for the, uh, for the market to rise during a Fed tightening cycle. And in this case, it's, it's completely flat. So I'll continue with the quote. So being roughly flat this time around is hardly a major feat. The only other time historically when the stock market was this weak in a Fed tightening cycle was back in the 72-73 phase. And guess what? The S&P 500 was down 35% in the next year and still in the hole, minus 20% two years hence. The key, as always, are the lags. The market rallied 8% in the August 1980 to December 1980 aggressive tightening period. And then look what happened to the S&P 500 next, right into the August 1982 lows. During the 2004 to 2006 tightening ahead of the GFC that nobody saw coming, the S&P 500 advanced 11%. Did you really want to extrapolate that performance into the future? In the 1999-2000 Fed tightening phase, as the tech bubble got going, the market rose 7%. But what happened the year after the last tightening? tried down 10% and two years later down 14% and the bottom wasn't turned in until after the fall of 2002 or autumn of 2002. So, and this is really the the, really important bit. So the point is this, there is nothing strange about the stock market withstanding the Fed tightening cycle. It happens almost all of the time. All the bad stuff happens after the last hike as all the lags from the prior tightening cycle kick into the economy and earnings kick into the economy and herd earnings, and we have yet to see that chapter written. So I guess that's self-explanatory, but what it's really saying is that once the tightening cycle is ended, then you sit and wait for all Mm -hmm. the momentum of that tightening cycle to wash through the economy, or in other words, you wait for the lags to, to hit. And if you want a visual representation of that uh i've got a chart that shows the this is the uh 2000 to 2002 bear market so this is back when Mm -hmm. we had the last tech bubble obviously from 99 2000 was a well-known uh bull market in tech the fed started raising rates uh, and it went on hold for the better part of six to twelve months and then I've uh, marked in this chart where the Fed started its aggressive easing cycle. So this is when it became apparent. Okay, so this chart shows the S&P 500 uh, from roughly 1998 through to 2003. And you can see the rise there. The Fed went uh, on hold. Uh, I think it was in, in about 2000, stayed on hold for a little while. And then in early 2001, when it was apparent that its rising cycle had created a, a, an economic slowdown, it started to ease aggressively. Now, during that easing cycle, the S&P 500 fell 43%. Now, that doesn't necessarily happen like that all the time, but it just reinforces uh, Dave Rosenberg's point that the, lags of, the lagged effect of monetary policy takes some time to work its way through. And by the time... The Fed goes on hold, 
it's already done enough tightening. And I'm and and it goes back to my view that I think the Fed and, and the RBA for that matter has done enough tightening. It's just the market hasn't really seen the evidence of that yet because the lagged impact of monetary policy is unknown. A lot of people don't factor it in. And it's only when the profit warnings start to flow through that you get to a point where you think, okay, well, things are starting to slow down. And just this week we saw quite a few profit profit warnings flowing through. You mentioned best and less before. Fletcher Building came out with another uh, profit downgrade. Interestingly, though, its share price held up well, which suggests that a lot of that bad news is already priced in for Fletcher. So that's that's an interesting uh, angle there. Um, what other companies? There was, uh, I think it was IDP Education. Um, yep. And I can't remember what else, but there's been a few few profit warnings this week. And as we get into the the end of the financial year, we could see another, you know, a few more uh, in the, in next week. Oh yes, yeah, so it was Rex Airlines was another Rex one. Airlines. Now, whether that has yeah. has to do with supply constraints of being able to get mm-hmm. crew and all that sort of stuff, I haven't looked into the detail of that. Uh, but I did note as well in the, the week that we just had that uh, is it um, Qantas finished down, uh, Webjet finished down, Flight Center fell quite sharply yesterday or the day before, I think it was uh, on its on its investor presentation. Uh, corporate travel management broke down on the charts. So there's a lot of, we've spoken this before, you know, is the reopening theme starting to wane? And I think that's that's true now as people start to, you know, going back to the the spend, they spend, they spent their excess mm-hmm. and now it's time to probably pull their heads in a bit. And I think you're just seeing that in the charts of lots of, uh, lots of different stocks out there. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Because I think travel, if you're traveling for leisure, it's probably one of the most discretionary purchases you can make. Uh, and if people are worried about their savings or worried about their jobs, that's probably one of the first purchases or plans that you're going to defer for the future. And I think there was one, we were having a conversation, I think a few weeks back about this thing called the RV indicator, the recreational vehicles indicator. And I think, uh, especially in the U S it's been flashing some recessionary signals because, um, it's also one of the most discretionary purchases you can make because you have to borrow money to, to buy those vehicles and you're only ever going to buy it if you can afford it. And clearly now, uh, people are maybe starting to worry about their budgets and also borrowing costs are rising. So that's one thing. Actually, there was another indicator that I, uh, I, think also, that I saw yep. uh, on Twitter today. It was the cardboard box indicator. Uh, and I thought <laughs> oh, that was yes, quite interesting yes. that um, the, the, the rationale is that you get everything delivered in a cardboard box these days. And if cardboard yep. box prices are starting to fall, then that's an indication of slower activity slower purchasing slower deliver mm-hmm. uh, less deliveries all those sorts of things so there, there is anecdotal evidence of that happening uh there is another chart i wanted and i think fed express also and issued like a da- like a pretty bad quarter or it didn't meet expectations so that's something that to corroborate sorry that was fedex in the us theory. you mean yeah 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 there's another um chart just on that theme that i wanted to show you now this shows uh, the bank credit growth of all commercial banks in the U.S. And 
goes back to all the all the way back to the seventies, right? So each time there's a recession, the recessions are the shaded bits. Each time there's a recession, you see a sharp fall in the bank credit growth. So not necessarily below zero, but just a sharp fall from high high growth to to lower growth, and that happens in every shaded period that you see here, except really this short one in in twenty twenty. But there was a little dip just before that. Uh, but obviously that was completely unrelated to uh, what was what was COVID related. But if you look at it here, we've gone from ten percent growth down to nearly zero growth on a year-on-year basis. Now that is one of the sharpest falls outside of two thousand and eight, or the 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 two thousand eight to two thousand ten period. Really, it's one of the sharpest falls in that the whole history of this this series and and we don't have a shaded period yet so uh i think it just shows that the u.s economy going back to what we said before the lagged impact of monetary policy is starting to bite bank credit growth is slowing sharply and the question most people would have is well why isn't the stock market reflecting that and i think the important thing to understand is the stock market sometimes it just it's not always about forward looking and seeing where the economy is heading. A lot of the time it's, it's, it's liquidity based. And you've got to remember that the fed Mm -hmm. doubled its balance sheet in 2020 to, uh, to ward off the impacts of COVID. And then the, the the federal government created massive stimulus that in many respects is still flowing throughout the economy and is therefore not reflected Mm -hmm. in these bank credit statistics. People don't need to borrow if they've been given given money by the uh, by the government. Mm-hmm. But there's a little uh, liquidity equation that I wanted to show as well that, in many ways, explains why the S and P five hundred does things that sometimes doesn't make sense. So, yep. net liquidity in the US. I'm excited for Sorry. this. I'm excited for. I said I'm just excited for this. This is a yeah, but you're a nerd, segment. so um, I think maybe not a lot it's of not going to be. Exciting. <laughs> maybe it's not going to be as exciting as uh, as we're making out. But um, I take your point. It, it, no, this is riveting. It uh, is riveting. Is riveting. It's riveting for people like you and me, Kirill. Um, so net liquidity is the size of the Fed's balance sheet minus the TGA balance, which is the Treasury general account, minus the reverse repo balance. Now, before you go to sleep. Uh, let me explain what that means. So the size of the Fed's balance sheet is uh, is, is really just the, the, the credit that the, the Federal Reserve uh, puts into the economy. So when it buys uh, assets, when it buys government bonds, it increases the size of its balance sheet. Now, as you know, the Fed has been doing QT for the best part of 12 months, which means it's been shrinking its balance sheet by about $90 billion bucks a month. Now, a lot of people think, okay, the Fed's doing QT, the Fed's raising interest rates, surely liquidity is shrinking, surely that means the S&P 500 should be going down. But that doesn't always work like that because you've also got the TGA balance, which is the Treasury general account, and that uh, that um, is a is a product of the government issuing or the treasury issuing bonds and taking money out of the economy and putting those bonds into a special account at the Fed called the Treasury General Account. So when that account is growing, that's actually taking liquidity out of the system. And when that account is falling in value, it's putting liquidity back into the system. 
And then you've got the reverse repo balance. So the reverse repo account was created uh, a number of years ago, I think back in 2014, as a way to help the Fed manage its interest rate. So the interest rate that you hear about, uh, the overnight uh, Fed's fund rate, mm-hmm. it's really it's really irrelevant. The Fed needs many other tools. So once you got to zero, uh, to zero bound, and once you got to um, ne- needing to do quantitative easing and all that sort of stuff, the uh, the the, int- the normal interest rates ceased to become all that useful. So the Fed had to create all these other tools to try and help it help it manage its interest rate. So it created the reverse repo account, and that exploded in growth in uh, 2021 because it was a way for the Fed to try to take liquidity out of the market. As I mentioned, it doubled its balance sheet. It created a huge boom into 2021 as there was all this money chasing cryptos and tech stocks. And that's where you got that big bubble from. But then they created, or then they increased the interest rate on the reverse repo balance. And that sucked in a lot of, a lot of liquidity. So if we look at the various, uh, uh, various aspects of this equation you've got, the, and, and I've done this to show the annual change in, in dollar terms. So this is reserve bank credit. And as you can see, quantitative tightening has kicked in. And, and over the past 12 months, the Fed's balance sheet has shrunk by about 400 billion. And this next chart shows the reverse repo change over the past 12 months. So as you can see here, it's nearly uh, a 400 billion reduction over four months. Now that actually means it's a net liquidity injection into the system. So it's practically offset any contraction that the Fed has done through QT. And then if we look at the general treasury account, that is down just over 400 billion as well. And again, the same as the reverse repo any reduction in the treasury general account is an injection of liquidity into the system. So just on those measures there over the past 12 months, there's actually been a net injection of liquidity into the system. So if we you know, go back to this uh, equation, even though the Fed has been raising rates, even though the Fed has been doing QT, the fact that the general treasury account has fallen and the fact that the reverse repo account has fallen that means there's there's liquidity being going into the system that has more than offset mm-hmm. the the attempts of the Fed to to reduce uh, rates, which is why the S and P has held up. And if you look at going back to those earlier charts I showed right at the start, mm-hmm. we're at extreme greed levels, whereas one year ago we we're at extreme fear levels. So the combination of of good liquidity conditions. And the shift in sentiment from fear to greed has been behind this rally in in the stock market. And that has nothing to do yet with this sharp contraction in in bank credit. Mm -hmm. And that's where the lagged uh, effect of interest uh, interest rate rises really do have an effect. So at the moment, the market's focusing on liquidity. The market is supported by uh, great enthusiasm and extreme greed sentiments and and just in general uh, positive sentiment. But if you look at this chart, it's showing that bank credit growth is contracting sharply and that takes its time to work its way through the economy and the, the stock market will eventually reflect economic conditions. 
It's just that they're in the future and at the moment the market's celebrating liquidity and uh, just feeling good in general. So if we want to bring it back to what's not priced in, what's not priced in, and if, if you look at the S&P 500 and its, its earnings projections, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, the S&P 500 earnings, forward earnings, uh, are assuming that earnings bottom in this quarter and that they're going to start rising again. Whereas those forward indicators and that quote from Dave and Roseberg suggests that the real pain happens after interest rates stop and then we wait for the lagged impact of previous rises to flow through. And the market's just not pricing that in. Um, and I think that's the that's the biggest concern moving forward over the next few months. And do you think it's not pricing it in purely because of the net liquidity sloshing around the market? That helps. That certainly helps. And that helps. Yeah. I think just in general, when when sentiment is this really strange thing that uh is really difficult to, to rationalize. And if if a good way to explain it is when if you if you think about the market being on PE ratios and when there's fear uh and when there's concern about the future, let's say the market puts prices, puts stocks on a PE ratio of 10. In normal times, it might be 15, but in fear times, it's 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 10, which means that the, the, the market falls considerably, even though earnings might not. The market just decides to put a, a, a lower multiple on those earnings. And then in times of great optimism, the market might say, well, I'll price these earnings at 20 times. Mm -hmm. And then you get a, a, a big rise from that. So there's no underlying change in the fundamentals it's just that pessimism or optimism just decides to price assets differently. And at the moment, the forward multiple on the S&P 500 is about 19 times, which if interest rates are 1% or 2%, you could, you could understand that. But when you're getting over 5% on three-month bonds in the US, mm -hmm. then you wonder if that's an accurate pricing or whether that is just based on unfounded optimism. So... That's really how I rationalize it. Liquidity plus optimism equals high share prices. Uh, the Fed is, we know the Fed's going to continue to do QT so that the balance sheet will continue shrinking very slowly over time. Whether the, the Treasury general account, we've talked about that as well, that will be rebuilt back up to probably levels of around 500 billion. So over time, that will take liquidity out of the market. So that leaves the reverse repo account to do the heavy lifting. Uh, and recently that we've seen a lot of money come out of that account and whether it's gone into money market funds or whether it's gone back into the, the stock market, who knows, but it's created liquidity in the system because it's not, it's not sitting at the Fed. So uh, whether those conditions persist or whether there's, there's going to be a change, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that a lot of forward-looking indicators for the economic growth situation in the US are, are turning down and are looking dicey. And the last piece of the puzzle missing on that front is really employment in, employment. And the the rallying cry of the bulls has been, well, employment is still hanging in there. People have still got jobs. People have still got incomes and therefore yeah. they're going to spend, which, you know, it's a fair enough point. Mm. I completely get that. Uh, but the other, I guess, response to that would be that inflation is, uh, sorry, uh, employment is a lagging indicator in the same way that inflation is mm -hmm. and you will only get increases in in unemployment once you're starting to see see the slowdown or sorry those increases will only come through once the the slowdown has already 
uh, kicked in and it'll be too late to, to really do too much about it. So, mm. um, yeah, so I think uh, that's that's what we're looking at. We're seeing a, we're going to see a slowdown in the US economy. And my view is whether the market wants to acknowledge that at some point, all I'm saying is that it's not priced mm. in at the moment. Yeah, so it's pricing in a lot of greed, but not enough reality. But I think also on the in the employment um, aspect of it, there was a very interesting paragraph from the, uh, I mentioned her already, the Reserve Bank's um, Deputy Governor Michelle Bullock, and she said that um, that on on her assessment or the RBA's assessment for the first time in decades, companies' demand for labor exceeds the amount of labor that people are willing and able to supply. And so, in other words, employment is above what we would consider to be consistent with our inflation target. So, and she said that I think right now employment is about what, 3.5, 3.7%. She expects the unemployment rate to rise to 4.5% by late 2024. Um, so, so that's a, de- that's a decent and, rise. And yeah, that's a decent that's Which a means decent that, rise, that probably yeah. comes with something very looks like a recession. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And when when people are losing their jobs or they think that they may lose their jobs or they see their friends losing their jobs, that's going to have an effect on how they deal with their savings. Yeah, and it affects sentiment. Going to want you to know, keep it, that it affects all those yeah. all those sorts of things. So, um but not to get not to get overly bearish, I just think that the market is probably yeah. yet to price that situation in, but certainly when that gets closer, I think that would be Look, you know, we talked about the property trust last week, right? There's, I think there's lots of mm-hmm. sectors that are priced pretty attractively at the moment. There is probably earnings downgrades to come, so you do need to be careful about that. But in, in many cases, you are seeing lots of, uh, lots of really attractive opportunities. It's just that some of the headline stocks, some of the, the larger stocks are really uh, – probably obscuring some of the value that that's out there and you know a good example which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago was was commonwealth uh trading at over two times book when you know a competitor of its that has the same profitability jp morgan was trading at 1.3 times book so there's a there's a big difference there between those valuations Mm -hmm. so from a headline perspective you know indices a lot of the aussie stocks look Sorry, the Aussie market looks pretty, pretty stretched and ripe for a fall. But there are plenty of stocks that I think are really going to be really good buying if we do get a continued sell off in the in the months ahead. Yeah, exactly. It's not. Yeah, it it doesn't pay to be overly bearish about the stock market as a whole because, as you always say, it's not a stock market; it's a market of stocks. And I think just yesterday I told you that um, two two stocks reached their fifty-two week highs. Well, not just two, but two of the more interesting ones was Brickworks. I thought that was quite interesting given its heavy involvement in, in bricks and building development. And the other one, also quite interestingly, was a luxury retail stock called Satire. I think yep. that's how you pronounce it. Um, and it's up, I think, 90% year to date. It finished 9% higher yesterday when the market was as a whole was clobbered. And I think over the past 12 months, it's up 500%. Uh, so it's quite a, quite an interesting stock, but to be fair though, it, it did, um, it has rebounded from very low, um, base. I think, um, it reached a peak, 
I think around 2021, and then it fell about 90% into June 2022. So I think bargain hunters came that. in. Uh, and yeah, and that's you make a good point, again. and, and again, that yeah. is that there are always opportunities out there. Like there's a couple of stocks in in the portfolio that I uh, manage for subscribers that have done really well in the last just couple of weeks. So I mean, we've been in IAG, the insurer, for 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 12 months now, and that's shot up really, really strongly, and we're up over probably around 30% on or maybe 25% on that mm-hmm. position. James Hardy's done really well for us since we bought in at the start of the year. Uh, Horizon Holdings has had a really strong couple of couple of weeks. It's just shot up really strongly. So when we talk about these things, we're sort of talking about it on a, on a market perspective. The market looks overvalued, but certainly under the surface, you know, I'm seeing all lots of opportunities. The, the question for me is, uh, are you buying something where the earnings have been rebased and and the earnings are pricing in some kind of recessionary outcome? Uh, for example, James Hardy, we bought into that after it had its third profit downgrade uh, for the year. Mm-hmm. And w- when a company has three profit downgrades, you think, okay, that's close to resetting where it probably is possible to grow from again. So these are the, these are the sorts of things that I look for uh, for my subscribers and um, and when we talk about these things on this podcast, we talk in in general terms and we don't talk about specific stocks so much. Uh, so it, it's not all doom and gloom, but we are sort of giving an overview, and that overview is that uh, until until we see blood in the streets, until we see headlines and yeah. and magazine indicators that tell us that now's the time to get out of the market. Uh, I think it's we mm-hmm. we still need to be cautious about this lagged impact of monetary policy not being priced into the market, and therefore uh, that should feed through into how you think about portfolio construction. Whether you're holding uh, uh, some money in cash, like I've been buying some bond funds recently, just because the the bond yield is is quite decent, and I think if we do go into a slowdown, uh, bonds should do do quite well. So quite being quite defensive. I think a sector that we could probably look at in the weeks ahead uh, is gold stocks. I've seen gold stocks start to come under mm-hmm. pressure over the past couple of weeks. I think it might be worth doing a, a deep dive into that. So if um, mm-hmm. any listeners, if you're keen on on, on uh, us doing something on the gold sector or anything else, feel free to leave a comment and uh, we'll, we'll try and get to it in the weeks ahead. Great. Well, with that said, I think that's a perfect time to, to sign off. Um, and yeah, as Greg said, if you'd want us to cover any any topics, especially like gold, leave a comment, but also make sure to like and subscribe and always ask yourselves what's not priced nice in. Thanks, Thanks Kirill. Greg. Good stuff, mate. <laughs> See you, everyone. See ya. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by liking and subscribing and turn those post notifications so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends, and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.